Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Almighty and everlasting God, you would have all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. By your almighty power and unsearchable wisdom, break and hinder all the counsels of those who hate your word and who by corrupt teaching would destroy it. Enlighten them with the knowledge of your glory that they may know the riches of your heavenly grace and in peace and righteousness serve you, the only true God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. Um, so we last last time we were together, we discussed the 10,000-foot view of the history of the church, if you will. And I I said that we, what we were, where we were going next was to the Reformation. So we kind of got up to about the Reformation in church history. We fast-forwarded through the first 1,500 years. Um, and we're going to come to about the year 1,500 now, and we're going to focus for a little bit on, uh, from well, for really from here on out, on on Lutherans, when we're talking about church history and, and Lutheranism. So um, we got to the birthplace of Lutheranism, and now so we're going to talk about uh, the Reformation and Luther, and then Lutherans after Luther, and then Lutheranism from that time until now, uh, to kind of do the history of, of our church specifically. Right? We, uh, a long time ago, in Lutheranism 101, we talked about other denominations. Now we want to really focus on on Lutheranism, and it's actually very fitting because uh, th- that we're about to hit October, and um, October 31st is of course Reformation Day, right? So uh, we'll have a we'll have Reformation Day Sunday. I think it'll be October 29th this year. It's the closest. It's the last Sunday in October, and then. The first Sunday in November is All Saints Day. But um, we're also going to have, by the way, if you haven't seen yet, we're having an Oktoberfest. That'll be, um, it's uh, maybe maybe an unlucky one. We'll see. But uh, Friday the 13th. <laughs> and, uh, it's Friday the 13th, um, 5.30 p.m. We'll be we here. We have that every year. Mm, we, we haven't had it every year, no. So, anyhow... We'll have German food for that. That'll be good. All right. The Reformation in Luther. It's more than just German food. Um, <laughs> so what I'm going to do is, if you have your books, we're on page 214. And the way the book lays it out is it starts with Luther first and then um, talks about the Reformation more broadly after that in the world of the Reformation and then Lutheranism after Luther, and then Lutheranism until now. So um, we're going to follow that order. I'm going to try and fill in some of the gaps. I think that the book skips over a few kind of important things. So I'm going to try and fill in some gaps here and there. But basically, we're going to try and go through the book. And since it's history, it's easier to just kind of, um, I think, read read through it. So uh, that's that's how we're going to do it. So we'll, we'll start there on page 214 uh, about Luther's life. So Martin Luther was born to an average middle-class German family. His father was a successful and pragmatic businessman who wanted his son to have a good education and career. So Luther entered the University of Erfurt Law School at the wishes of his father and received a master's degree in 1505. Okay, so Luther's kind of a bright guy, right? His, his dad recognizes... Um, they're, I mean, they're basically the peasant class people, but his dad recognizes that he's able to have some 
if you if you want to frame it this way, upward class mobility um, here. And so uh, he, so Luther's born in 1483. The book doesn't include that detail, but he's born in 1483. Uh, so at the end of the 15th century, and um, his his dad recognizes right that he's a smart kid. So he's gonna he ends up going to law school. Okay. Then unexpectedly, when uh, uh, he was unhappy with the circumstances, right? So um, Luther didn't really particularly like being a lawyer. Unexpectedly, when returning to the university after a trip home, Luther encountered a severe thunderstorm and a lightning bolt struck near him. In terror of death and divine judgment, Luther cried out, "Saint Anne, help me! I will become a monk." Okay, so obviously uh, late medieval Roman Catholic uh, Catholicism, uh, the prayer to saints is well established at this point, right? So basically um, what we think of as what Luther is in as far as Roman Catholic and really a lot of what we still think of today as kind of Roman Catholic develops um, after, if you remember that split in between the East and the West, remember what year that was? I think it's 1086. Is that right? When the East and the West split. Um, after that happens, the Western Church really starts to develop on its own. With 1054. That's right. Uh, I don't know why I thought 86, but anyway. Um, or yeah, around you know 10, uh, 1100. Um, this is when. The East and the West split. And then from there, this uh, medieval Roman Catholic scholasticism really develops. And you get a lot of what we think of as kind of uniquely Roman Catholic today, like prayer to saints. So um, anyway, that's by the time Luther comes around, that's very well established. So he, pray, he cries out to St. Anne, St. Anne, help me, I will become a monk. Obviously, monasteries and... and um, Monks as a as a thing, the monastic life is very monastic vows is uh, very much established um, today. And we should, by the way, at some point uh, talk about monastic vows. It's in the I don't know if we'll get to that summit, the world of the Reformation. Uh, if we don't get to it this week, make I'll make sure to try and cover it next week. But Lutherans have some very interesting things to say about monastic vows. Um, and it's interesting today because I see in the world more and more Christians want to kind of separate themselves from the world, right? Because of how the world is more and more or less and less Christian, let's say. And um, as Lutherans, I think we have a partic- um, we, we have something particularly to say to that idea that we need to separate ourselves from the world. Right, and this idea that we that we can still live in the world but not be of the world, and um, how Luther Luther was much more about preaching the gospel boldly than about separating himself from the world. So um, it's it's kind of an interesting thing. But anyway, but at, at this point in his life, he's like he thinks that what a good Christian boy would do if uh, he was wanting to be a good Christian young man is to go and be a monk right so he says he, he swears to sweet saint anne he'll become a monk um now 
the book makes note, by the way, that this this story isn't completely historically substantiated, but it's a good story, and um, uh, it has been included in most major Luther biographies. So there is a since since Luther is such a big figure in Lutheranism, obviously he he's so big that the denomination itself gets named after the man against his own wishes, by the way. Um, there is a bit of a uh, mythology, if you will, that develops around Luther, right? So some of these stories that we hear about Luther, maybe they didn't really exactly happen, but um, or happened to the degree that we tell them today. But that is that's true with any famous person, right? You get these kind of mythological stories, if you will, that um, that develop. So, all right. After this turn of events, Luther entered the. Um, I, hold on one second. I just want to make sure I didn't want to miss anything here. Okay. Yeah. After this turn of events, Luther entered the Augustinian monastery in Erfurt in 1505. Although Luther dedicated his life to the disciplines of the monastery, he still felt uncertainty and doubt about his salvation. He regularly engaged in fasting flagellation, and confession, but he continued to experience deep spiritual despair. To distract him from his depression, Luther's supervisor, Johann von Staupitz, ordered that Luther pursue a degree in theology. So after being ordained as a priest, he started theological studies at the University of Erfurt in 1507. Okay, so um, first of all, to note there, right, that Luther, under this monastery view, is struggling to understand his salvation, right? He has a burdened conscience. He can't get away from his sinfulness, um, and he feels like he has to to do good works, right? Uh, to fast and to um, go to confession constantly. And uh, Staupitz, right? There's this story. I don't uh, think it's covered here that um, when Luther goes to confession with Staupitz, uh, he he won't stop confessing, right? He'll just be there for hours at a time trying to, to get rid of all his sin, if you will. And um, eventually Staupitz just says, enough with that, just lean on Christ, right? And and th- this is actually kind of the development of Luther's uh, thinking about the gospel, okay? Yeah, so, yeah go ahead. Is a, a monk and a priest the same thing? No, so um, there were different... So there are different – within the monastic vows, there's different orders, right? So you had um, Augustine – I mean there, there's, there have been these monastic vows for a really long time. Now the to how extreme they were and then how they developed throughout history changed. But you'd have someone that would write in a monastic order, which would basically be – and I mean in one sense it does date back even to the Old Testament because in um, – the Old Testament, you have these random, and it just kind of shows up out of nowhere in in the Book of Judges. But you have these uh, people, these Israelite men who take Nazarite vows, right? And there's these with a vow. There's these kind of extra conditions that don't apply to other people, right? So you'd have um, with the Nazarite vow, they couldn't drink alcohol, they couldn't cut their hair, and they couldn't touch a dead body, right? Isn't that the Greek Orthodox? Well, so. Is that like 
so uh, not necessarily Greek Orthodox is a much it's Greek Orthodox is a denomination that has lay people and priests, but there are there are Orthodox monks. Um, the, so anyway, um, so Augustine um, in the 300s writes an order for um, monasteries for monks, um, and that's the kind that's the order that Luther enters into. But there's also like the Benedictines, right? That's that that's an order written by Benedict. Um, so anyway, uh, there are these different monasteries, but uh, some of the monks did become priests, so they did become ordained. Not all of them did. So um, you had you had some priests that that became priests after being a monk, and some priests that just became priests by going to seminary basically and then you had monks that were just monks and then you had some monks that became priests so if that makes sense all right so um so Staupitz uh again interestingly he tells him to pursue a degree in theology and this is kind of like his dad right his dad was like you're smart you need to go do this Right, and I I do think that's interesting that the kind of people you want as leaders of something, it's kind of like the story of George Washington, right? Like he didn't want to be president, but everyone said like you're the only guy for the job, and so he was forced into it, and he was actually a really good president, right? The same thing with Luther is like everyone knows he's smart and capable, and he doesn't really want to do it, but that kind of um, it is kind of confirming in a way, right, whenever someone doesn't want to do something, but everyone external to them says that they'd be good at it and, and shows them that this is the way to do, that that is God working in people to show people their paths and their vocations, um, right? I also have something. Since I want to build my house, I can grow up, but I don't really want to do it. Okay, we'll talk about that later. Um <laughs> Yeah. All right. Uh, so Salpitz in this way kind of recognizes the same thing that his father recognized. So he does go ahead and get ordained as a priest um, and uh, goes to get a theology degree, right? So it's actually going to be his like second master's degree at this point, 1507. At the University of Erfurt, Luther was exposed to the current humanist ideology um, and really – so the, there, this is a um, important shift in philosophy that happens. So in uh, you kind of got in Western philosophy. Try and do this really quickly. Uh, you have the th- kind of th- three or four major what we'd call epochs of philosophy. So starting around uh, the, the time of Christ, right, and a little bit before that, you have the Socratics, right, named after Socrates. So this is kind of Socrates, Plato, these people who are, for the first time in Western thought, really thinking about thought, right, thinking about the nature of being and and what is physics and metaphysics and trying to categorize all of thinking, right? So 
Um, that's the kind of Socratics. Going along with what we talked about last week with church history, uh, af- after the Socratics, uh, around really the time of Constantine, after you get Constantine and Christianity really takes root in Western civilization, you get uh, the medieval or Middle Ages type of philosophy. So this is people like Aquinas, right, Um, if you will, that uh, draw on the Socratics, but it's very much Christianized, right? And the kind of um, main idea of medieval philosophy is that um, God, right, is is the overarching principle and then everything down here is very small right uh humans are very meaningless in a way so if you walk into a big gothic medieval church what does it make you feel like it makes you feel small right this kind of the idea okay well around this time around 1500 if you will we get what is often referred to what the book refers to as humanism here, uh, or what we often refer to as the Enlightenment, which flips these two, right? Um, the Enlightenment, the, you can think of, mo- and this is kind of what we'd call modern philosophy. You can think of that famous Rene Descartes, one of the major modern philosophers' phrase, I think, therefore I am, right? Cognito ergo sum. Um, and this puts man, uh, this is the idea of humanist, right? It's human-centered philosophy in, in charge, right? Man is in charge, and then everything else comes down from man. Okay, so this is, a, this is what's the world of the Reformation is there's this kind of humanistic enlightenment thought that's really starting to bubble up in the Western world. And... It's important, actually, that we distinguish this is not what Luther is trying to do, right? Luther's not trying to um, become a man-centered theologian. Uh, he has some problems with medieval philosophy, but his solution is not this kind of atheistic type of modern philosophy, right? And then really to, today is we, we see the modern philosophy coming to an end and, and switching more to a postmodern philosophy, which... Um, that's what my undergraduate degree focused in was postmodern philosophy. So I can talk at length about that, but not, I don't want to do that right now. So, um, but anyhow, this is the situation that Luther is encountering. He's kind of, they're kind of coming out of medieval philosophy and into this more modern philosophy. And he's, in one way, he's kind of battling both sides of that, right? Um, the kind of overarching authority of the church in the medieval um, era, right? Because you have these problems of like the the Pope, right? Becoming a, a major, not only religious figure, but a major political figure as well. Um, so he's kind of battling that on the one hand where the church is overreaching. And then on the other hand, he's battling this more atheistic modern view. So, but one of the things that comes out of that to kind of set this in context, is what um, the book mentions here, 
this back to the sources idea. So one of the good things about the Enlightenment is we're not just going to trust religious authorities anymore. We're going to go back to the sources. And what that means for Luther is studying the, the Bible in the original languages, right? Studying the Bible in Greek and Hebrew. And so uh, I'll leave that up there for now. But uh, so th- this is what the book says. It kind of brushes over this, but it's important. At the University of Erfurt, Luther was exposed to the current humanist ideology. His studies were influenced by dominant philosophy of returning back to the source, that is, to the original text in the, each area of study. For theologians like Luther, that meant the Hebrew and Greek text of the Bible. After receiving his doctorate in theology in 1512, he became professor at Wittenberg University. For Luther, this was a period of intense study. He prepared and gave lectures on Psalms, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. It was in his study that Luther encountered the words of Romans 117, the righteous shall live by faith. According to Luther himself, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through the open gates. This marked the turning point for Luther. Okay, so... um, That's why I make sure I'm not missing anything. Actually, the book it, it does a pretty good job here, I think. So, yeah, th- this is a, a big thing for Luther, right? That, th- and this is what's going to be the source of the Reformation. And let me let me actually stop here to say we're talking about Luther because God God used Luther to bring about the Reformation. But what's actually at the heart of the Reformation is the Scriptures. Right, the Bible. It's by the Bible that Luther is able to bring to light what has been lost in this late medieval Roman Catholicism. It's through the Scriptures that he realizes what the truth of God's Word is, and what the truth of God is, and what the truth of reality is. Right, and so when we talk about the Reformation in Luther, um, we talk about Luther just like we would talk about Hezekiah in the Bible. Discovering, rediscovering the book of the law, right? Um, Hezekiah isn't anyone special in himself other than he's a poor, miserable sinner for whom Christ died, and he happens to be a guy that God chose to be king of Judah at the time when the book of the law was rediscovered, right? And that is a special thing. So we see throughout history, right, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, like Paul um, or uh, you know, you when we talked about the early church, right, there were theologians like, take um, Athanasius, for instance, who God used to confess the truth in their time and place. And so it happens that during this time and place of late medieval Roman Catholicism, in which there were a lot of problems, which we'll talk about, uh, God used this man, Martin Luther, to bring about what we're going to call the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, but it's not about the man, right? It's it's never about the man. Um, in a way, it is, but in a way, it's not, right? Because ultimately, it's about God's word. Okay, so um, he's lecturing on the Bible, and he uh, really starts to dwell on what this this verse in Romans says that the righteous live by faith, right? And and this is corresponding to what he's reading in the Psalms and in all the other books of the Bible too, 
that man's not saved by good works. And that goes, that runs very uh, contrary to what he's experiencing in the church, right? So we'll keep reading here. While professor at the University Luther was also priest at Wittenberg City Church, during this time the popes were more often concerned with political questions than with the duties of their office as supreme governors of the Roman Catholic Church. They led wars, so that's what we were just talking about, right? The Pope the Pope thought them of himself as a political leader, not even really as the churches, as a church, pastor of the church, right? Um, they led wars and were more interested in their positions as princes of the territory of the church state and the enlargement of their political powers. Wars and huge building projects like St. Peter's Basilica in Rome were costly, and so raising money became an issue. It was a common practice in the Roman Catholic Church to raise money by selling indulgences, that's a piece of paper, stating that the buyer's sins were forgiven. Okay, so basically, um, you could have uh, a, buy a piece of paper that said, buy a ticket, you know, that said, your sins are forgiven because you donated money to the church building project, right? So um, maybe we'll try that out next time we need to raise some money, you know. Um, I don't think that would work either. We could do it as like a joke, though. Like, yeah. we're going to sell indulgences. Maybe the local Roman Catholic churches wouldn't think that was so funny. But, um, unfortunately. Right. Unfortunately, there were some in the church who took advantage of the poor in selling these indulgences. One such instance was a man named John Tetzel, a Dominican monk. Okay, so there's another order of monk, by the way. There's uh, the Dominicans, um, who was notorious for this practice. Okay, on October 31st, 1517. So what happened on October 31st? Uh, Tetzel came to a town near Wittenberg to peddle these indulgences. And... Um, the the thing that's interesting about October 31st, right, and there, there is actually a connection. Of course, we know it as Halloween. There is actually a connection to that, is that uh, November 1st is All Saints Day, right, in the church, where we celebrate all those who have uh, fell asleep in Christ, right, who have fallen asleep in Christ, those, those people who have passed on before us that were... Uh, faithful to Christ and his church. And um, that it used to be called All Souls Day or All Hallows Day. And and so Halloween is All Hallows Eve, right? And so um, this uh, practice of um, the, the Eve before All Souls Day, um, there's some there's a little bit of pagan mythology in it, right? But uh, it was the the Halloween was the the night before All Souls Day, right? So um, originally the dressing up was that you know these the the people's souls were coming out, right? So uh, anyway, that's the connection to to Halloween, and uh, so on All Hallows Eve, right? Um, when Tetzel happened to be coming through Wittenberg, Luther. Uh, posted his 95 theses, or propositions condemning this practice and other abuses within the Roman Catholic Church. 
Um, this event might be familiar to you if you have seen images of Luther nailing a piece of paper to a wooden door. Okay, so we've all seen this picture there. That's there in the book, right? Um, now, this next line is very important. Luther's intent by posting this, his theses was not to break away from the Roman church, but to stimulate academic debate and draw attention to the practices of the church. Okay, so this this is actually super common. That uh, And I wish we, we still did this in some way today. And um, I took an elective in seminary on specifically on different disputations that were happening. But uh, we do see sometimes today debates happen in universities, right? Sometimes you'll see like a, the university will host some sort of debate. Um, we're actually hoping to host a debate, the, the Lutheran Student Fellowship at Peace in Oxford. We're hoping to host a debate uh, in the spring. So I'll let you all know about that. But um, anyway, at, at Luther's time, in the way that the university was set up at the time, it was very common to have disputations. And these would happen very regularly, maybe even weekly. And what would happen with the disputation is that you would have a professor or a student prepare a list of theses, right? And theses are just statements. And then uh, the other, per if someone wanted to debate them, they would prepare some counter theses. And then they would go back and forth and argue these with one another. And if you had a thesis, um, when you when you had a, a list of theses, or, or what we would call also uh, thesis statements, right? You've maybe if if you remember writing papers in school, you had to have a thesis statement at the beginning of the paper, right? Um, you would then have to back up each thesis with uh, propositions that were logical. And then you'd have to use formal logic, you'd have to use logic to actually argue these theses, right? So um, if you've ever been exposed to any kind of familiar, uh, any kind of formal logic, right? This is the kind of um, it, idea of this is that if you have, say, say you have a rule, so if A, then B, therefore B, if B, therefore C, thus A, therefore C, right? It, it's kind of a logical conclusion. Does that make sense? Right? If A, if A then B, if B then C, therefore if A then C, right? And you would have these propositions that would then logically conclude the thesis statement. Um, this is what Luther was trying to do. He had a list of thesis statements that he wanted to debate publicly. He was not at all trying to break away from the church. He wasn't trying to cause a reformation. He just said, and, and honestly, the 95 theses, if you read them, they're, uh, I'll get to you in just one second, Steve. Uh, they are more political, really, than theological. They, they're more problematic with the selling of indulgences to fund political campaigns than they are really at all theological yet. Um, Luther becomes much more theological later on. But really, as a university professor, he's just trying to have a public discussion about this issue of indulgences that's going on. Um, we'll see what happens with that, but that's that's the main thing that's happening right now. 
but it's a very innocent thing, right? Um, and we'll see that throughout Luther's life is that Luther, uh, kind of like what we were saying earlier about Luther and wanting to just be left alone and be a monk, um, is that he's continue he's continually forced into things. And you can see, uh, I think you can really see God's hand in that, is that God uses a man who's not even trying to do something necessarily to get what needs to be done done. Anyway, go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I, I, I think it was written in the language of the church, the Latin. Mm-hmm. So the common person really didn't know what it was. So it was really directed <coughs> to the other people that were students and yeah, yeah, it was supposed to be a university right. thing. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, they they were in Latin. It was not uh, for the common people at this time. He was really just trying to have a a discussion, right, a public forum about this. And you know, it's always a bad bad deal whenever um, when I, whenever the people in charge don't want the public to talk about what they're doing. Right. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a bad deal. So, um, okay. Uh, for Martin Luther, the problem was deeper. It was not primarily the morality of the clergy, nor even its ineptitude, but rather how the church taught, thought and taught about salvation that got him interested in the reform of the church. He ultimately wanted to convince the church of its heirs, thus reforming its doctrine. The 95 Theses were quickly printed through the availability of the printing press, See page 222 and spread all over Germany. Okay, so um, what the book doesn't really include here is that um, these 95 theses became sensationalized, right? So people saw them, and it was it was like a um, it was like the the bottle had been shaken up, right? The Coke bottle had been shaken up, and it was just waiting to burst. And Luther kind of popped the top by doing this unknowingly. And so when people saw these and read them, um, the Roman Catholics that were in charge were very upset, but then the, comp, the, the people uh, had been feeling this pressure, right? And they were very interested in it. The other kind of thing that's happening at this time period, right, with the Enlightenment is also a development in technology, which is one of the reasons that the modern man feels so powerful is because of the development of technology. And um, we'll get to this more next next week with the development of the printing press. But this is one of the reasons that Luther's thoughts are able to spread so quickly is because the printing press is now developed. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, just a few years before, uh, Columbus uh, you know, discovered the Western Hemisphere so, you know, they, before that, they thought the world was flat. And I guess people nowadays don't really do. <laughs> but anyway, that, that was the era. I'm not a geologist. Yeah, um, yeah the, the, there, there are things that are being rapidly developed and, and uh, learned. Right, so yeah, 1482. Columbus sailed what? 92. 92. Columbus sailed the ocean. I need to go back to second grade. Um, 92. I guess my years are just off tonight. Yeah, they're just off. I've been within like 50 years each time. It's fine. That was one of our stories for kindergarten. I need to go back to kindergarten. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so the printing press takes off, and 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 these uh, political statements gets get spread widely, and eventually um, a copy is is sent to Rome. And uh, let me let me see here. Let, let, let me read here, and then I might I might have to backtrack a little bit. Luther saw that there was an error in what the church of his time was proclaiming. The error had consequences not, not only for the understanding of how people are saved, but also in the area of how the sacraments are understood, what the church is and what the church's ministry is, and what the Christian life looks like. Luther engaged in much dialogue and writing during this period in an effort to persuade the Roman Catholic Church to reform its views. Okay, um, let me backtrack a little bit. So that the, it kind of skips ahead here to 1520. But in these uh, three years uh, after the 95 Theses, um, and actually, by the way, that the book go, goes a little bit out of order because it's um, if you go back to when it's talking about Luther um, teaching, so he's continuing to teach after 1517, right? It's not like he gets kicked out the next day. Um, he, he teaches into 1518 and 19, and actually continues to teach for a while after that. But the um, that Romans 117, the righteous shall live by faith, um, according to his uh, the Luther's works, which records that quote-unquote tower experience where he's in his study and, and has this realization, that's 1519. So that's actually two years later. And that's why I said that the, the 95 theses are more political than theological, is that he's got a problem with the indulgences at first, and then that kind of continues to lead him down this path of, of diving into God's word about salvation, right? And, he's, and he has from his past these struggles with salvation, and it's all kind of connected, right? Um, but it's at first it's disparate, and then it gets brought together. So, okay, when the 95 Theses is sent to Rome... Um, the the Pope gets upset and begins a start starts to put him on trial. Now, think about this is prior to the internet and prior to cars, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, really prior to like the train. So it doesn't it takes a while for things to get back and forth, right? Even with the printing press to get fa- back and forth between Germany and Rome. And so, um, and as you know, with any kind of legal issue, things take a while, right? You file a document with the government, it takes a while to, to get it back. Um, so in this kind of 1518, 1519, 1520 period, Luther is writing, uh, so that catches up with the book, Luther is writing important things. So two of the most important things he writes, and the book references it, but not give you what they are. So I'll tell you what they are. When it says that he writes about what the church is and what the church's ministry is and what the Christian life looks like, is in 1519, he writes the Babylonian captivity. That's a good one. He calls the, the Pope the son of the devil. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty good stuff. Yeah, he gets that, and that's the interesting thing. Remember, we were just saying he get—he's uh, kind of timid at first, like he doesn't want to do this. And then at some point, and I think it's really in this period, 
when he recognizes the power of the printing press and his ability to think through these things and also his conviction about the gospel that he really just accepts his calling to be the guy to do the job. Okay, and then freedom of a Christian. Is 1520. So these are pretty important because in the Babylonian, these are much more theological. Um, obviously, Babylonian captivity by its title, as if, if you've been in the Sunday morning Bible study, um, you know, the Babylonian captivity is this idea that Judah is taken captive because of its unfaithfulness to these pagans. And uh, in the Babylonian captivity, Luther dissects the seven quote-unquote sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church at the time and makes the argument that the true Christians have been taken captive um, in a time of unfaithfulness to these wicked men. <laughs> um, so it's kind of spicy, right? Uh, he's, he's basically saying that Rome is like Babylon and the the faithful remnant has been taken captive, right? Um, and he, he focuses on, yeah, kind of what the church is and what the church is supposed to be about, right? The church is supposed to be about true word and sacrament ministry, not about um, people trying to earn their salvation by doing all these kind of fake good works. And freedom of the Christian, he really starts to dive into um, not the church issue, but then the individual Christian issue and this balance between justification and sanctification. Um, so his famous statement in the freedom of a Christian is that a Christian is simultaneously the freest man of all and yet bound to all men. So he, the idea is that a Christian... A true Christian has the freedom of the gospel. They've been totally free by the gospel. They're no longer under the condemnation of the law. And yet, what do they use that freedom for? To serve their neighbor. Right? So um, he uses the Bible's language of free and slave to discuss justification and sanctification. And that's uh, freedom of the Christian. So uh, that's 1520. And uh, this is, yeah, like you, I think you can really see here, this is when the Reformation is really starting to take off, right? All right. Um, the church's response was to declare Luther, this is top page 217, a heretic and insist that he retract his positions. In 1520, so the same year that he writes Freedom of the Christian, Luther was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church, and in 1521, he was summoned to defend his doctrinal positions at the Diet of Worms, or the Diet of Worms, to say it in German, or to say it in American, the Diet of Worms, right? <laughs> which is very tasty. Um, during his defense, okay, we'll get to that in a second. So, um, yeah, basically, uh, he's put on trial by the Pope, right? And he is excommunicated, and, and this is very important, that he is kicked out, right? He does not go off and try and start some new thing. 
right? He wants to reform the church in the same way that the church throughout history has been reformed, right? Um, to, to go back to the early church, for example, the uh, with Arius and the, the Arianism controversy, a large majority, not, not, uh, not a large majority, but a majority of the church had actually been convinced by Arius that Jesus was created, right? In, or in the first couple hundred years of the Christian church. And um, that's clearly not biblical, but Arius was a very successful propagandist, basically. And so the church needed reformation. And people like Athanasius uh, went in and, and they had ecumenical discussions and the church was reformed, right? And out of that, we get like the Nicene Creed. Okay, so... Um, or I used the Old Testament example of Hezekiah earlier, right? Heze- the, the church had fallen out completely out of practice of its worship, and Hezekiah discovers this book of the law, right? And they have to reform themselves. That's what Luther always wanted. He wanted to reform the Roman Catholic Church. And instead, they kick him out, right? He's not trying to get kicked out. He wants to stay there. He wants to reform. But they kick him out. And so... Right, so this is why you'll hear Lutherans say that, and I, this is true, that Lutherans are really the continuation of the Western Church, right? It, they, the, it, if you're drawing a line from, you know, um, from let's say the Acts two church um, until now, right? The continuation is. You know, when we get to the year 1500, Lutherans are the straight line that have maintained the rule of faith, right? Lutherans are the ones who maintain what Acts 2 was all about, right? The Roman Catholics are the ones who started to veer off into another direction, right, and go somewhere else. And Luther wanted to bring that back here like that, right? He wanted the the graph to look like that. But instead, Roman Catholics continued that way and Lutherans continued this way. Right? So, that's how it goes. But it, it's an important point that Luther did not want to be kicked out, right? He wanted to reform. Okay, but this is what he replies uh, when he's summoned to defend his doctrinal positions. So a, a diet or a diet is this kind of gathering, right? Um, and because in the med- in this time period, in the late medieval time period here with the popes and everything, church and state became very mashed together. This was kind of political and it was kind of theological. Um, but this was uh, similar to like a church council, right? So in the early church, we had the Council of Nicaea. This is on a smaller scale, the same thing, right? They're trying to have this this diet or this gathering, and it's at the city of Worms, but it is pretty funny, right? That it's a diet of worms, anyway. Um, unless so, this is what Luther says, and this is uh, the famous line, right? Here I stand. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures, right? And notice what's the main point, right? 
The main point is the Bible. I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. All right. Good speech. Um, so he leans on the Bible, right? Uh, he, he says, this, I can't do anything else but lean on the Bible. And uh, Luther, so I'll keep reading. Luther was summarily declared an outlaw. Upon his return home, he was, quote-unquote, kidnapped by his benefactor, Frederick of Saxony. So uh, Frederick the Wise, as he becomes known, is one of these electors. And this is something we didn't talk about. We'll, we'll talk about it a little bit next week. But it's not actually Germany as we know it today at this time. It's the Holy Roman Empire. So Rome is the capital, right? And it's the, the, the Roman Empire. Um, and it's holy, right? Because church and state are all mashed together. And as the Holy Roman Empire, the way that the, the emperor is elected... Right, so we already talked a little bit about the uh, the um, emperor. Did we did we mention the emperor? Oh, we did it. Uh, so the emperor is uh, Charles V, and he's the one who summons the Diet of Worms. So I thought we said that. I guess we didn't. Okay. So Charles V is the emperor. He summons the the Diet. Um, and the reason Charles summons the Diet, by the way, is because Luther's causing these problems, and there are Turks or Muslims that are um, wanting to invade the Roman Empire. And um, what are most of the people in the empire? They're good Roman Catholics, right? So he needs the church and the pope to be unified because the Turks are invading. So he wants to take care of this problem, right? So... Um, and so he, uh, the emperor summons this, this diet, and uh, and and that's when he's asked to recant. And you can really see the mixture of church and state there. So anyway, all right. Uh, but oh, the way that the elector, the the way that the emperor is elected is that each region has what's called an elector, right? So it's kind of like princes, if you will, and the princes or the electors then elect the emperor every so often. Um, and uh, Luther's elector is actually very fond of Luther, right? So, and you can see God's hand in this. So Frederick the Wise um, kidnaps Luther on his way home because when he gets there, he's going to be arrested. And he hides him in uh, the Wartburg Castle. Does this, does this talk about this? Okay, I don't think it does. Okay, so um, he's hidden in this Wartburg Castle in, in Wartburg, what's now Germany. And... It's during this time that Luther translates the Bible for the first time into the ling- um, into the to the German language, and and we talked about this before that um, there's a history of the Bible being translated into language that people can understand, right? So it's not the the Bible's not originally written the, or the so if if we start with the New Testament, the New Testament's not originally written, excuse me, in Aramaic, which is the language that most of the people writing it speak, right? Jesus speaks Aramaic, Paul speaks Aramaic. 
it's written in Greek because that's what most of the world can read at that time, right? And then um, Jerome translates that into the, that Bible into Latin because that's what most of the people use to study when when Jerome comes around, right? What had happened during this time period, however, is that the common person, be, especially as that we get into Europe more than um, the the Greek world, and um, as the as the Roman Empire grows, the the common person doesn't speak Latin anymore, right? Uh, Latin becomes a language of study, but it's not for the common person. And in the Holy Roman Empire, in the majority of it at this point, German is the common language. And so Luther is like, we need to put the Bible back in the hands of the people because what's it all about? It's always about God's word. And so he translates the uh, Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament in, into Germany. And um, it's actually very uh, – again, I, I keep coming back to this. You can see God's hand at work in everything in the way that the whole Reformation kind of falls together at this time in history. Because another thing that's happening with the Enlightenment and this back to the sources is that a guy who Luther is going to argue about with other things later, Erasmus, who's a humanist scholar, um, compiles for the first time in history all of the extant manuscripts that existed of the New Testament in Greek and compiles the first uh, – kind of combination of all the Greek manuscripts that had existed. When Jerome translated the Vulgate, um, he had access to a number of manuscripts, and some of them had kind of been kept together. But um, and but really that, that Vulgate, that Latin Bible, became the main Bible that everyone used. And no one really questioned going back to the Greek because Latin was the official, what they'd call the language of the church, I think Steve mentioned earlier, the lingua ecclesia. And um, Erasmus, in an attempt to go back to the sources, really compiles this, uh, all the manuscripts of the New Testament Bible. And so Luther translates right from the Greek into the, into the German. So it's actually a better translation in some ways than the Vulgate was, um, and probably the best translation that they've had in a long time. So... Um, that compilation, by the way, just kind of interesting historical note, is called the Textus Receptus. So if you've heard that before, that's what the King James Version is based on. Um, it's also what the Luther Bible is based on. So uh, that's uh, where basically the source of most of our modern Bibles, the New Testament manuscripts, is that Erasmus compiled those in the early 1500s. So um, I can talk more about that later. So anyway, Luther translates uh, the Greek New Testament and the, German, and, and the Hebrew Old Testament into German. Um, and for the first time in a, in a while, Scripture was the available language in the in the available in the language of the common people for all to read. Um, oh yeah, he just did the the New Testament in Wartburg. He, later on, he did the Old Testament. Um, and and again, that also goes back to the printing press, right? That the printing press allowed the Bible then the source document of what we believe to be spread throughout the, throughout the Holy Roman Empire. 
Luther continued to press for reform and defend the centrality of the gospel through preaching, writing, and teaching. He was distraught at the lack of spiritual knowledge among the common people about the faith in the Bible. Um, okay, so the the book kind of skips ahead here. Um, but the Reformation really explodes from, from here. Are we... We're going to talk about the... Well, we're out of time. We're going to have to do all this next week. Okay, i got to see what the book does. Um, because we got, we definitely have to talk about the Augsburg Confession. Okay. Anyway, eventually, um, eventually Luther, uh, Luther gained so much popularity that basically he's let off the hook of being, being arrested. Um, but when he gets out, one of the things he does is, as he's distraught by the lack of the knowledge of the common people, um, he writes the catechisms to aid in the instruction of families and children at home, um, which we're all familiar with Luther's small catechism, right? And then the, he wrote the large catechism as a teaching manual for the small catechism, basically. He also wrote many hymns to aid in the and instruct the common people during worship, and we talked about that a, couple, uh, a while back, right, that Luther wrote all these hymns. All right, so we'll pick back up from there. Uh, next week. Any questions about tonight? Yeah, Steve. There's a, a group of people, Mennonites or whatever, they, they still use the German Bible. Don't they uh, carry that around with them? Yeah, uh, actually that, that is true. A lot of the Anabaptist groups, the um, well, you still use German German Bibles because so the Pennsylvania Dutch, it's not they're not Dutch people there. It's Deutsch, yeah, which is German. And um, they'll they'll still use uh, Luther Bibles and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, when you're talking about Latin earlier, it reminds me of the lessons we we haven't done in a while. Yep. We need to pick back up your Latin lessons. Thank you for reminding me of all my failures tonight. That's what what else are children for? All right. Let's uh, end in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you uh, for all your gifts and especially for preserving your word throughout history. We thank you for men like Luther who you used in time and in place and in history to continue the preaching of your word among your people that your truth may not be bound but have free course. We pray that, that you would continue to keep this true among us, that we may glorify you and, and know the truth of your word in our lives. We may we pray this all through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.